started. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25 and 26, we're going to cover in overview fashion those two chapters today. Uh, So Acts chapter 25, there should be a hardback blue Bible around you if you didn't bring one or don't have one. Uh, And uh, if you don't own a Bible and you would like a paper version, um, you can go out into the lobby and in the bookshelf under the resource table there, there are some paperback ones. If you would like a Bible to give away to someone, please take, honestly, as many of those as you want. I'm never going to tell you to not take Bibles to give away. Uh, So those are out there for that. There's blue, light blue ones and white ones. They're both exactly the same. They just had a different cover when we got them. So Acts chapter 25 this week. Uh, We are kind of narrowing down on the last few weeks of the Acts series. This is week 40. Uh, So it's it's kind of crazy. And I'm going to be sad to see the series go, um, because I think that this series for me has, has stretched me a little bit, has made me ask some questions I hadn't asked before. Uh, and if you're wondering, that's why we like to walk through books of the Bible, uh, because we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and that they have everything that we need for life and holiness. And so uh, what we want to do as our regular diet on Sunday morning is just walk our way through the Bible and let it tell us what we need to be talking about. Uh, It's always interesting how when we work through books of the Bible, I have conversations with people in our church who are like, wow, the sermon you preached today was just what I needed. And I'm like, I didn't have any idea that that thing was going on in your life, but the Holy Spirit did. Uh, And so we just trust his ability to lead us through what we need to go through more than we trust my ability or the elder's ability to do that. And so we just walk our way through books of the Bible Uh, as our main diet. That doesn't mean we don't have side dishes here and there and dessert once in a while, but as our main diet, we just walk our way through books of the Bible. So by the end of today's sermon, my prayer is that we, uh, like we're going to see the Apostle Paul do, would be equipped to be faithful witnesses. You might remember from the very beginning of Acts, uh, Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. In our Alliance family, which we're going to talk a lot about being an Alliance church in a, the end of our service today, we, are, we talk about ourselves being an Acts 1-8 family. That's in reference to that idea of being witnesses. And so today, I hope that we will be a little bit more equipped to be faithful witnesses in, our, in the world we find ourselves in, like Paul did in his world. So the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts have actually covered a couple years of time. And I know some of the sermons feel that way, but in Acts, it covered a couple years of time. Only two of you got that joke. And in Acts chapter 21, uh, just a couple chapters back, Acts 21, Paul gets arrested. Uh, and then in Acts 22 and in Acts 23, he gets brought before a Roman tribunal, so like a trial. And then he gets brought before a ruling council, and then there's a plot that's formed to kill Paul. Uh, he escapes from that, and he's brought to a man named Felix, who is the Roman governor of the land of Judea, uh, where Paul happens to be. In Acts 24, Paul was tried before Felix. And then he was left in prison for the next two years. You might remember we mentioned that Luke likely was around as well. And that's probably when a lot of this was written during that kind of not traveling time because Paul was in prison. So that leads us up to Acts 25. And what we find out is that Felix has now been replaced by a new governor named Festus. And the stage is set for what I think uh, is one of the most riveting scenes in the entire book of Acts. Uh, And so we're going to cover chapters 25 and 26 today uh, in kind of overview fashion. So um, I just want to invite you to pay extra attention because we're going to cover a lot of ground. So let me set up chapter 25. 
As soon as this new guy, Festus, becomes governor, the Jews immediately asked him to send Paul to Jerusalem for trial. And their plan, verse 3 says, is to ambush Paul and to kill him on the way. Or at least if that doesn't work, they'll just sentence him to death once he gets to Jerusalem. So there's a plot to kill Paul. So Festus, the governor, says, no, I'm about to go to Caesarea where Paul is in prison. So why don't you guys just come with me and you can present your case against him uh, in front of me there in that place. So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 25, verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. Acts chapter 25, verse 6. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, and listen, that they could not prove. That's really important. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, says to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now that's really important because you might remember Paul is a Roman citizen by birth. And so verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. So basically here's what happens, right? Uh, the Jewish leaders pre- present all kinds of false and unprovable accusations against Paul, and Paul defends himself. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the scriptures don't mandate that you never defend yourself. That If you're thinking of the famous Bible verse of turning the other cheek, that's not what that means. And, and maybe one day we'll get into a whole series on those sayings of Jesus, but it is biblical to rightly defend yourself, and Paul does that here. But it says Festus wanting to please the Jews. So he's a people pleaser. He says, well, why don't we go to Jerusalem for a trial? But Paul knows what the Jews want to do to him. So he says, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm a Roman citizen. So I want to appeal to Caesar. Right? And so at this point, Festus has no choice. If Paul wants to stand before Caesar, then he'll stand before Caesar. Uh, he, He can't not do it. After all, Rome is the place where Paul's been wanting to go. And so on top of him defending himself, he also gets to go and appeal to Caesar. And by saying, I appeal to Caesar, he basically just booked himself a ticket there. They have to take him to Rome now. So all of that then leads to verse 13, where we see see King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, uh, or Bernice maybe, how you want to say it, show up in Caesarea. Now, these two lived together in a not exactly healthy relationship for a brother and sister to live together, okay? This was incestuous relationship. Uh, We're not going to get into that today, but just to let you know the kind of character of this king, okay? But, But here's what I want you to know about King Agrippa. He has quite the family heritage when it comes to Christianity uh, in this part of the world. His great-grandfather was King Herod, who tried to kill Jesus as a newborn baby. His great-uncle was the murderer of John the Baptist and later tried Jesus. 
His dad is the one who imprisoned Peter and beheaded James. And so he has all kinds of history with an interest in this, this the way thing that's going on in his world, this Christian movement. Festus starts telling King Agrippa about the apostle Paul. And Festus says, hey, this guy appealed to Caesar, but I'm not sure what to tell Caesar when he gets there. And so Agrippa says, well, I want to hear from him. And Festus says, all right, great, tomorrow. And all of that leads to chapter 25, verse 23. And Luke writes this. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Uh, so get the picture, right? He, here's Agrippa. He's a king. He's dressed in royalty. He's got the purple robe. He's got the gold. Maybe he's got the scepter and the orb thing. I don't know what he had. He's got rings on his fee- fingers. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie with Russell Crowe, Gladiator, but uh, the, the Caesar in there. Think of that where he's all dressed up and just gaudy, right? So think that way. Uh, Bernice is decked out beside him. She's got her best uh, robe for special occasions. Uh, on the whole thing is pomp and circumstance and there is a full house packed into this audience hall watching the king and the governor come in flanked by an honor guard of soldiers and high-ranking officers every prominent person in Caesarea would have wanted to be there and after all this pageantry is complete the people uh, quiet down Festus stands up in the hall and basically says bring in the prisoner Uh, So we've seen movies with this scene in it before, right? Uh, This kind of action going on. And after a long pause, the door opens and who comes through? A great warrior, a great king, a great no. An unassuming Jewish man with what 2 Corinthians 10.10 calls a weak bodily presence. And so he comes into the hall. You can almost imagine what's going on in the minds of the people in the audience, right? Like this guy is the cause of all this? This little guy? Really? Really? And so he's brought to the center of the hall, and that leads us to uh, chapter 26, verse 1. And and I want you to hear this carefully. This is the longest of Paul's five defenses in the book of Acts. It's really the culmination, uh, kind of the pinnacle of all of his defenses. Agrippa says to Paul in verse 1, hey, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretches out his hands and he makes his Defense. Now, as I read this, I want to invite you to put yourself in King Agrippa's shoes. You're the king in this situation. Uh, you're listening to this. Acts chapter 26. I'm going to start in verse 2 and go all the way to 23. I consider myself fortunate that it is, it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise God made to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was conceived that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. 
I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had all, and when he had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now listen to the response then in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So the Roman governor in, this, in the midst of this whole thing with all these people watching shouts out, you're nuts, right? That's what he does to Paul, embarrassing, shameful. And as soon as the governor speaks, you would expect the prisoner to stay silent, but, but not this prisoner, not Paul. He looks back at Festus. He says in verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. So Christianity and our rational mind are not at odds with each other. And then he turns to King Agrippa and speaks directly to him in verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things is escaped his notice, for this has not been done on a corner. What's he saying? I'm, I'm not doing this stuff in secret. This is my life out in the public. 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Now, at this point, we would hear this audience gasp. Like, whoa, I can't believe he, the prisoner just called out the king in front of everybody, right? Paul asked him, do you believe? I know that you do. I can only imagine how stunned King Agrippa is at this point. He's probably a mixture of embarrassed, feeling that how dare you feeling that sometimes we feel when we're in authority and someone calls us out, right? How dare you do that to me? He's probably feeling some of that, but he says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This is a loaded question. He's saying, you really think that in this little one speech, you're going to persuade me 
to be a Christian. And now the audience is probably holding their breath. What is Paul going to say? What's going to happen next? And Paul responds, verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I love this, right? This is a great example of what happens if somebody confronts you about your Christianity to your face and says, what are you trying to convert me? The answer is yes, I am trying to convert you and I want everyone that you ever know and anyone else that can hear me to be converted to. That's the boldness of Paul proclaiming the gospel. And then he looks to Bernice and the governor and then looking all around the audience hall, the room full of all these, you know, higher ups, if you will, who have everything the Roman Empire has to offer, especially those in high authority, right? They've got everything that the Roman Empire has to offer and he cries out, besides these chains, I wish that you had what I have. I wish that you trusted in Jesus as Lord, just like I do. And with that, the king gets up, Bernice and the governor get up, and they walk out. And so later on in the last verse of 26 right there, uh, Agrippa concludes that he could have gone free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But Paul knew what he was doing. He knew that by appealing to Caesar, he wouldn't go free and that he would get an audience with Caesar. So he faithfully delivers the gospel, but Agrippa tragically rejects the Messiah of Israel, the, the coming one, the chosen one, Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And so it's time for Paul to continue testifying to the gospel of grace in Rome, just like God told him he would. This is an amazing scene. Now, we could, I mean, we could do a whole 40-week sermon series just on applications from this text with regard to being a faithful witness in our world. But uh, for the sake of just doing it in the next few minutes, we're going to trim it down to nine. All right, so here are nine things I just want to close with for this week, uh, and then we have some uh, church announcement business to take care of together. For the sake of time, we're going to do nine. So the first is that Paul is able to address unbelievers respectfully. He's not rude here. So number one is we address unbelievers respectively. Now, listen, what we say is more important than how we say it when it comes to the gospel. But our delivery method and our tone matter to God because it affects the people we're addressing and he cares about them. So we should seek to blend truthfulness with tenderness, with courage, with compassion. It is very prevalent right now to try and own the other side of whatever thing you're talking about, right? Pick your side and the other side of that, it's, it's our thing right now to, oh yeah, I'm going to own them online. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make them look dumb. I'm never going to give in to respectfulness. And that is never the aim of Christian witness. It is never the aim of Christian apologetics, of defending our faith, to make anyone look stupid. That is not what we're about. If you do that, understand you are giving in to wickedness. That's what that is. That is never our call. Our aim is always to persuade others to Jesus, and we cannot do that if we aren't respectful in our delivery. Uh, a pastor who recently passed away on Into Glory 
Uh, Timothy Keller was incredible at this for being winsome. He started a church, a conservative church in the middle of Manhattan. Nuts, right? And super successful at it. How? He was winsome in his mannerisms. And there was never even a hint of a scandal about his life. And I love that. Secondly, when it comes to being a faithful witness in our world, we're respectful, but we can't be afraid to express what it was like to not believe. Right? Now, Paul recounts his former way of life. Notice, he doesn't cover up much of it. Uh, There's a line in a song that I really appreciate, that all your sins are now stories of grace to tell. They have no power over you anymore. They have shame has been broken, right? If somebody wants to come to you and say, yeah, well, I know what you did in your former life. You go, yeah, so does Jesus, and he died for me. So that doesn't have power over me anymore. Sometimes it helps people understand the gospel when we explain our perspectives and our practices prior to our acceptance of Jesus. And so in sympathizing with our in In identifying with our audiences this way, we can sometimes gain a better hearing, right? Now, don't don't mishear me on this point. Your personal story is not the gospel. It's not the gospel of your testimony. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord. So that's the, the point. But our ability to identify with our listeners is important for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. In verse 14... We find this little additional comment in Paul's testimony here where he says that Jesus told him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, goads are sharp sticks that are used to kind of prod and direct animals in kind of husbandry and farming, right? And so Jesus is telling him, hey, Paul, you were kicking against my discipline, my direction in your life, my call to you. And Jesus is basically telling Paul, stop fighting it and just come to me, submit to me. And think about the ways when you came to faith, some of us really like to kick against the goads, others of us don't, but if you like to kick against the goads, think about the ways that you once did that, that you kicked against God's direction in your life. So how can you build that into your testimony? As Paul does here. Plan to lovingly explain Your former assumptions, your former misconceptions, maybe even your sins that Jesus has delivered you from. Not to make yourself the hero, but to make him the hero. Now, not everybody has Paul's testimony, right? I hope nobody in here has Paul's testimony. Used to murder Christians. No. Right? Not all of us have that dramatic testimony like Paul. Some of us might. Some of us in this room might have a pretty dramatic testimony. And that's your testimony. But, but don't spend all your time there. What you want people to do is listen to you, right? Not run away from you. So maybe your story is not dramatic. Like, my story is not dramatic. I came to Jesus when I was a kid. I was little. I didn't, even, I didn't have time to get on drugs or whatever. I didn't have time to steal stuff. I was like six. So that doesn't mean I don't have a story, right? We rest in this. You don't need to provide the drama to make the story of the gospel interesting. Here's why. The whole thing. Some theologians call it a theodrama. It's the story of God rescuing the world that provides all the drama we need, right? The God of the universe became a human in flesh, died on a cross, 
so that we can be forgiven of our sins, and then he rose from the grave. That's all the drama the story needs. You don't need to add yours. You don't need to overshare, but maybe by discernment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the moment's right, you can be bold to do that as well. Number three, we don't aim to exalt ourselves. We take a note from John the Baptist here. May I decrease so that he can increase. We exalt Jesus. Don't miss this. His Damascus Road story is ultimately not about himself. It's about Jesus. He's careful to make sure that Jesus is the hero of the story. And this is a really good reminder that Jesus is always the hero of our stories as well. Right? Some of us, when we give our testimony, it becomes, I used to do bad stuff and then I met this guy, Jesus, and now I'm awesome. And that's not the testimony. The testimony is I used to do bad stuff and I met this incredible savior named Jesus who rescued me, gave me a new heart. And even though now I still feel pulled back to do that because of his life in me and the resurrection to come, I now live for him. Right? It sounds obvious to mention, but when we talk to unbelievers, we should be talking about Jesus. We keep talking about him again and again. Even when we begin a spiritual conversation about our life, we thread Jesus in there because he is our life. He's not the path to life. He is our life. Number four, we share the, not only the need for the gospel, but it's not wrong to share the benefits of the gospel. There are, right? The gospel brings amazing things to us. Everyone doing evangelism in Acts, they keep talking about God's grace in opening eyes, in transferring people into the kingdom of light, in transferring them into the power of God from out of the grip of Satan and their sin. And they keep talking about God granting them an inheritance. So like Paul, we speak to all people groups, both great and small, about their need for the gospel, but also about what the gospel brings to them, most importantly and namely Jesus and his presence. But because of that presence, you'll be rescued from your sin. You'll be delivered from the things that have you in bondage now. And so when it comes to being a faithful witness in the world, here's what we resolve to. Number five, we stick to the message of what? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we, we, we stick to the call to repentance based around that. Uh, to quote him again, Timothy Keller would say that the resurrection is the single most important event in human history. You have to do something with it. And so if you ever have any doubt about what to say when you're having a spiritual conversation with an unbeliever, head for the cross and the empty tomb. That's where you head. Give an account of the resurrection and a clear call for repentance. What is repentance? I grew up hearing this call to repentance was like this white-knuckled choice of going, I'm turning away from my sins and I'm going to trust. But repentance is deeper than that. I, I love to use this example. I don't know, maybe some of you haven't heard this, uh, but if you've ever had frozen apple pie, it's pretty good, right? Like Marie Callender's pretty good stuff. It's all right. Whatever pie you like, take your pick. Let's go cheesecake, all right? Because we have an amazing cheesecake baker in this church. So let's say you have cheesecake from the freezer, and it's like, it's, it's awesome, it's pretty good. But then you taste Rod's homemade cheesecake, and you repent. That's what repentance is. You don't want that anymore because you've had something so much better now. So much pressure on him now. But that's what repentance is at its deepest core. 
It's not about you white knuckling away from sin. It's about you going, Jesus is better than this. I don't want this anymore. I don't have to sin anymore. You used to have to. But now you don't. And so from the first chapter of Acts onward, Luke, the author, continues to emphasize this Messiah who suffered and died and rose bodily from the dead. So present in the preaching of the apostles was the promised Messiah that they saw in their Old Testament scriptures, but also present was a call to repent and believe. There's there's something good about that old-timey gospel, right? Repent and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And so until, until Jesus returns, we never get tired of talking about the heart of the gospel, which is repentance and trusting in Jesus. So in all of this, if we really want to desire to be faithful witnesses in our world, the number six, we rely on the help that comes from God. Paul in verse 22 reminds us that our help comes from God. You don't have to do this alone. In fact, you can't do this alone, so don't try to do this alone. To be faithful servants and witnesses of Jesus, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit for power and for grace because we don't have it in us. Number seven, we're respectful, but we're not cowardly. We're respectful, but we're not cowardly. The gospel demands a response And you might need to be ready to pose some probing questions to your unbelieving neighbors or coworkers or whatever it is. And some of you might be thinking, but if I have this conversation at work, I might lose my job or I might get downgraded or I might not get the promotion. And the response to that is, you're right, you might. But that's the call of Jesus for us. We give clear chances to people to accept or reject Jesus. Now, don't hear me saying Oh, I'm going to now go get myself fired tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying. Be respectful, and yet don't be a coward. Paul was certainly this way with Agrippa. Number eight, prepare yourself for rejection and ridicule. Right? In in James' words, don't be surprised, brothers, sisters, at every kind of trial, which might be rejection and ridicule. We have lived in a time where what's normal for Christians is to be respected. And that is not the case anymore in many places. Festus called Paul insane, and we should probably get ourselves ready to be called similar things. And that's okay. We're we're simply called to deliver the message about humanity's need for Jesus. Now, notice what Paul doesn't do here that is so tempting for us as citizens of a great country. Paul does not mix his Roman rights with who he is in Christ. Do you see that? He uses his Roman citizenship as a tool to proclaim the gospel and to protect other people back in Acts. But what he doesn't do is have an expectation that I have a right to be respected. As a Christian, you've died and you now live in Christ. So any of your rights as a Christian are gone. You're not alive anymore. You've been dead and resurrected in Christ, so now I live through him. So we can trust God with the result of our efforts in evangelism, and we can rest in his presence when we get attacked, when we get looked down upon. We're simply called to deliver the message about people's need for Jesus. And remember, only God converts people. Only the Holy Spirit gives the gift of faith. Not you. 
not how witty you are. So if you're not witty, it's fine. It wasn't going to be that anyway. Number nine, this is a huge one for us. We have to resolve to pray for the people that we want to see come to faith. Prayer actually matters. I know God is sovereign, but prayer actually still matters. And if you're like, those don't seem to go together, I don't know either. But that's what the scriptures tell us. And we lean not on our own understanding, but on what the scriptures teach us. And they teach us both that God is sovereign and also that prayer changes things. And so Paul's word to the crowd, I wish before God, reminds us what kind of hearts we must have before uh, when we think about the people that we want to see come to faith. He, Paul prayerfully desires that everyone in the assembly knows Jesus, right? He's like, oh yeah, not only you, but I want everybody who can hear my voice right now to come to faith too. So this suggests that he has a heart of compassion. He has the heart of Jesus, who the scriptures say, looked out on the crowds, felt compassion because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd until he came and rescued us. And so now he gives us that heart as well. We don't see as unbelievers as projects. They're not boxes to check. Those are people like you and I. They're people made in God's image who, because of sin, just like we were in sin, are in need of God's salvation. So we desire that they come to know the same saving grace that we have experienced through Jesus, our Savior. So the prayer is that God would grant us help to make his grace known in the places that we live, where we live, we work, we play, where we recreate, so that Every man, woman, and child, we've used this language before, would have repeated opportunities to respond to the gospel of Jesus where they live, work, and play. Yes, if someone wants to come in this room on a Sunday morning, they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to see the gospel demonstrated by how we sing and we take communion. But that's not the primary place where evangelism happens. The primary place where evangelism happens might be your kitchen table or your front porch or the water cooler at work. Or a park bench with your assistant coach on your daughter's softball team. Whatever that looks like. So may God help give us the grace to make his gospel known in a broken world in respectful and loving and compassionate and yet bold ways. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. That you've empowered us to walk in the new life that you've given us by your death and resurrection. And we just think about the people who may give us an an audience to hear the gospel, that we would go in not expecting that every person who hears your word would convert to know and love you like, like you have led us to. But Father, that we would expect maybe some pushback, maybe some, uh, maybe somebody calling us nuts, maybe somebody calling us insane, but also maybe that that's not the point. The point is that you've called us to share You've called us to speak with our mouth and live with our lives the good news of your son. And so, Father, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit? Would you give us boldness to do that? And would you just give us a love for people? Would you help us to not continue to be blind to the people that are around us? Would you help us to have the eyes of a missionary who sees every relationship as an opportunity to share the gospel of your son? We pray this in your name. Amen.